listening to Audio Fanfic Podcast. North of Zero by Slippin' Mickeys on AO3. Chapter 13 The Prophet They rode hard for twenty minutes until Mulder felt William's diaphragm spasming under his hand and he pulled up hard on the reins. Pumpkin skidded to a halt on a loose bit of scree, snorting dust from his nose and half-rearing back. Mulder could hear Scully pull up Molly and Gypsy behind him, the horses blowing and chomping their bits. He pulled William off the big colt's back and onto the ground. The boy began heaving, drool pooling on his lips. Well? The boy's head lolled dangerously. Scully! Mulder shouted, and she was by his side in a flash, gently moving him out of the way and taking William by the shoulders, turning him onto his side. Just as she did so, his head held tenderly in her hands. He spewed vomit in an impressive arc, splashing rocks and bushes that were five feet away. Scully made shushing sounds as he dry-heaved, rubbing the boy's back. Mulder knelt behind them, feeling useless and unable to help. The boy coughed once and groaned, laying prone for a moment before attempting to sit up, pushing himself up onto his elbows. Easy, Scully murmured running a hand through the boy's thick locks. Take it easy. You're okay. Molly whinnied behind them, and Muller stood up, alertly scanning the skies. They're not coming, William winced, sitting up fully. Not yet. How long do we have? William rubbed the back of his hand under his nose, smearing the blood that had begun to dry there. Thirty minutes, maybe? Longer, if we're lucky. Mulder knelt back down and put a hand on Scully's shoulder, getting her attention. Where should we go? He asked her in a low murmur. Scully opened her mouth, but it was William who answered. The valley, he said, his head hanging low. We need to go back home. Scully glanced at Mulder, but didn't say anything. That's a two-day ride, Mulder said. Maybe one if we really push the horses. We'll never make it. If we get close enough, William said, then paused to burp. We might. Then we'd better get going, Mulder said. You going to be okay? Yeah, the boy said, wincing again, and reaching out to both of them for help getting up. Scully looked concerned. Has this ever happened to you before? She asked him, putting an arm under his elbow when he wobbled. No, he shook his head, but I've never done that to that many ships at the same time. Mulder, still more concerned than anything, was nevertheless taken aback once again by his son's powers. Scully turned to him unhappily. He needs to rest, Mulder, she said, putting a hand on his arm. And, God, I don't know, a hospital? Tests? Whatever he did taxed his body to the limit. We need to stop. We can't, 
Will said weakly, glancing at Scully. I can keep going. She glared at Mulder, having nowhere else to lay blame. I don't like this. You're going to like it a lot less if those ships come back, he said, pulling their son along and helping him back into the saddle. She gave him a long, dissatisfied look, but turned toward Gypsy and Molly, speaking to them in low tones as she gathered both sets of reins. A piece of her hair had worked its way loose from her ponytail and fluttered in the wind as it picked up from the north. It had been ninety minutes since William had been sick, and they had made decent time, though the boy was clearly miserable. The both of them smelled like horse and fierce wet, maybe vomit, and his son's head would occasionally bump back into his shoulder, each time resting there for a bit longer. It's okay to sleep on me, Will, he said into the boy's ear. Your mom does it all the time. Seconds later, his heavy head thunked back onto Mulder's shoulder and stayed there, the boy relaxing against his chest. Two hilltops and several aspen groves later, Molly flicked her head and gave a low whinny from behind them. Mulder turned and looked back at Scully, who was leaning forward, patting the horse's neck and returning Mulder's concerned look. We'd better stop, Scully called up to them when Molly flicked her head back again, her ears swiveling like a satellite trying to find a signal. Mulder thought back to the times that Molly had known the ships were coming well before they did, and he thanked the universe for their small, extrasensory fellowship. Mulder directed Pumpkin to the edge of a cedar grove and pulled up. Will, he whispered. Buddy, I need you to wake up. Will groaned but roused himself. They coming? he asked breathily. We think so. Come on. Mulder helped him get down, but he fell to his knees, not able to stand. A low ball of worry was sitting low in Mulder's belly, spreading an anxious panic. William took a deep breath and closed his eyes, but they fluttered open a moment later. Mulder, I can't hide myself, he said weakly, his eyes wide with fright. I'm too weak. Scully? Mulder called over trying to keep the thin edge of hysteria out of his voice. She was tying the reins of the other two horses to the trunk of one of the cedars. When she looked at him, her pupils were wreathed in white. The earth below them began to tremble. From half a hillside up and behind an old slide of boulders, Ezekiel Barrow sat calmly on his prayer mat with his legs crossed in front of him, and watched the three horses and the burdens they carried. The adolescent boy seemed to be sick or having some kind of trouble, and he briefly considered approaching the travelers and offering his help or his prayers. The two adults seemed harried and out of sorts, concerned over the state of their child, which the boy obviously was. Ezekiel knew, as did the other followers of the Ascendant Faith of Above, that the gods would take care of all humans, either in this life or the next, and worrying over that life or death did no one any good. Perhaps the small family lacked faith. Ezekiel had not always been so devoted. Before the end times, he'd been base and simple, 
had had no time or inclination to devote himself to the god's glorious purpose. But the gods had spared him, and as he watched the small family of travelers, he felt a calm settle over him. He offered the sky a small doxology. From below them, the earth, as if in answer to Ezekiel's prayers, began the low vibration of approaching heavenly vessels. He smiled. The low rumbling meant the gods were coming, and Ezekiel prepared himself, as he always did, for ascension. He had been in the presence of the ships before, but had yet to be called. The rumbling increased in scope and breadth, and Ezekiel looked to the skies and rejoiced. Four ships approached. Four, in daylight no less. The voices of the travelers carried to him on the wind, the panic in their voices evident. If he tries holding off those ships again, Mulder, it'll kill him, the small woman shouted. The tall man uttered a foul swear word and dragged the boy back against the base of the nearest tree. Then we're going to have to do it for him, the man then said. Get the blanket, Scully. Did they not realize the holy miracle they beheld? Ascension was imminent. The glow of the god's love poured down from the ships, and Ezekiel cleared his mind and braced for the warmth. He watched as the woman dragged a heavy-looking parcel from the chestnut horse's back and handed it with some difficulty to the man, tucking herself up tightly next to her son. The man unfurled it and pressed himself up to the boy's other side, trying to drape the covering over the three of them. It wasn't quite big enough. Ezekiel realized they were hiding. He glanced up at the ships, who had come from the same direction as the travelers, and the ships performed some kind of choreographed maneuver, fanning out so that their light scans covered a wide area, moving back and forth, as if searching. He had never seen the like. The man made a harsh comment, turning himself so that he was half-covering the woman and boy. The gods were looking for them, and they didn't want to be found. How curious and heretical. Ezekiel watched, marveled. It had worked. The ships were moving on, and once again, Ezekiel fought off a small pang of regret. His time would come. He thought back to the small service he had attended in Arch Rock the month before. Ezekiel had thought the preacher there was mistaken, preaching about the new Holy Trinity their only hope for salvation. He thought the man a charlatan, a tool of the devil and of man. But something about the tableau before him struck a chord, and he thought about the preacher's sermon, his call to action. Perhaps the preacher was right. Was this the new holy trinity before him, set before him as if in answer to his prayers? Were the gods finally showing him his divine purpose? Ezekiel eased himself back amongst the rocks and pressed his palm to the odd crucifix around his neck, whispering a thankful prayer aloft to the heavens, to the ships. William had never before skipped school. Never. Just the thought of it gave him butterflies in his stomach, and he pictured himself in the principal's office, sitting in that big red chair, 
his legs swinging down, his feet not touching the floor. He'd been called to Mr. Hoffman's office once before, when Elliot Angelo had purposely thrown a dodgeball at his head so hard he'd seen stars. The P.E. teacher, Ms. Darling, hadn't seen it, of course she hadn't, just like she hadn't seen Logan T. tripping him right in front of her. He'd been so mad he'd picked up the ball and thrown it back at Elliot, but he didn't just use his arm. He'd used his mind, too, and the resulting smack when it connected with Elliot's forehead had been so loud the entire class had stopped what they were doing to watch as Elliot crumbled to the ground unconscious. He had hated sitting in that red chair, his feet unable to touch the ground like some elementary school baby. When his parents picked him up after talking with Mr. Hoffman, they wouldn't look at him. His father so mad that that vein on his forehead pulsed. Of course, they never really looked at him anymore. Not really. Not with love. Not with affection. Only with fear and mistrust. His mother tried. She did. But as he'd heard her praying one night, when he ghosted by her room as silent as death, she admitted that she wasn't God's strongest soldier. Not strong enough to raise him, anyway. Or at least that's what she'd told God. The butterflies didn't scare him, though. The big red chair in Mr. Hoffman's office didn't scare him. Nor did Elliot Angelo, or Logan T., or the rough loop of his father's leather belt. The only thing that scared him now was the other feeling he had. The one that had grown within him the last few days the one that couldn't be ignored. He ducked into the trees that lined the road by the bus stop, doubling back toward his house through the woods after the big yellow bus went by. He'd stashed his knapsack in the tree by the backyard the night before, had filled it with extra clothes and some food, a water bottle, a knife from the kitchen, a couple of comic books, his father's leatherman. He didn't worry much about his mother, she was not the most observant person, and all it would take would be for him to knock something to the floor to distract her. He could do that from fifty yards away and in his sleep. His father was the problem. He didn't leave for work until 8.30, and if he caught him skipping school, he'd tan his hide. William would have to wait until after his father was gone to grab the knapsack and begin making his way north. He was nervous about the journey, but something inside of him, something loud and increasingly insistent, was telling him to go. William knew he would miss the comfort and relative safety of home, but when he thought of leaving his parents, felt more relieved than sad. He thought maybe they would feel the same way. He settled into the long grass in the field across from his house and waited, laying back and looking up at the sky. He was lightly dozing when a feeling came over him like a cold splash of water. The hairs on his arms stood on end. He sat up quickly and heard the crunch of gravel. Several cars had pulled into the long driveway and were parked at an angle near the house. They were all SUVs, black, with tinted windows and big motors. He could hear the low rumble from all the way over in the field where he crouched. No one exited the cars. They simply sat, idling, until William heard the clack of the screen door hitting the side of the house, and he saw his father emerge to stand on the porch. 
At this, a man got out of the passenger side of the first car and walked toward him. The man himself was fairly average looking, but the moment William saw him, a shaky feeling came over him and his heart started beating hard in his chest. The man, wearing sunglasses and a suit, paused on his way to the house just long enough to glance in the direction of the field where William sat. The hairs on his arm stood on end once again. He heard the sharp bark of his father's voice, and the man turned back to him, replying something that William couldn't overhear. His father barked and grumbled some more, and he and the man began speaking back and forth. After a minute, William saw his mother come out of the house and onto the porch as well, nervously bringing a dish towel between her hands, as was her wont. The man in the suit said something else and then he pulled out a gun and shot both of William's parents point-blank. They crumbled to the boards of the porch like rag dolls dropped from a child's hand. He could hear the sharp crack of the bullets ripping through the air, could see the spray of blood on the wall behind where his parents had been standing a moment before. William was so shocked he froze, the scream that was on the tip of his tongue dying on a quiet exhalation of breath. More men streamed out of the SUVs then, several going into the house and a few more making their way to the barn. The man who had shot his parents reholstered his gun and took a long look at the field where William still hid. After a long moment, he too went up the steps and into the old farmhouse. William, after a moment's hesitation, stood and ran all out to the old oak tree in the backyard, grabbed his knapsack from between the V of two branches where he'd hidden it the night before, and then ran as fast as his legs would carry him into the lower forty and on through the woods behind them. It was a Monday, and William Vandekamp was twelve years old. The next day the ships had come, but he was already making his way north. If you like this story, please follow the link to the writer's page and leave some love. Kudos, comments, or subscribe. They'll love hearing from you. Then you can head over to our Patreon page and contribute to Audio Fanfic Podcast. As a member, you are granted early access to one new story per month. That's www.patreon.com slash audiofanficpod. Thank you for listening, and remember, the stories are out there.